happens when you get close to Jesus? How does it change your life? What if you could talk to someone who lived with him, who was one of his closest friends? What would they say? We're going to find out together as we study the book of 1 John. Welcome you to Milestone Church. I want to welcome those of you at our Hazlitt campus, our McKinney campus, those of you here at Keller in our video venue, those of you watching online, and maybe those of you watching online later. Would you join me in welcoming them together? We're excited to have you guys. And I am excited to be finishing up this First John series. What a great series it's been. But here we are in the fall. I got to tell you, I want to say before we jump to First John, I'm really excited about this fall series. I want to really encourage you to prioritize it. I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I heard this week across our three campuses, we have 270 people already who said, I'll lead a group. And that's amazing. That's, that's incredible. We actually need more because really this is how Christianity works. It's not just coming to listen to a guy on a platform, but it's getting in groups and talking about it and studying and praying and growing together and having people to, to walk with and talk with. And so we've never made it easier for you to get in a group, for you to host a group, for you to lead the group, because we know what happens is if you get in those groups, you're going to grow. So I want to encourage you. It really is worth it. And you are really going to enjoy our fall together. Well, life comes at us fast, whether we're ready or not, fall is here as a dad of kids in school. I was reminded of that this week. We honored teachers last week. I'm honoring parents as well because we got to get ready because when they're in school, it takes discipline to discipline. I don't know if you know that or not. Um, I like to be fun dad. And so in the summer, you know, it's like the, the kids will be like, hey dad, can we watch one more episode? Hey dad, can we watch a movie? Stay up late. Hey dad, can we have ice cream? I like to say yes to all those things. My wife's like, what are you doing? I was like, it's fine. It's summer. But that bill comes due, and um, that bill came due this week, right? Like my kid's trying to wake up. My son's like, Rah. I was like, what's wrong? He's like, I had to wake up. I was like, you knew it was coming, and so we're just trying to help him. And so wherever you're at with you and your kids, we're standing with you. We're all growing together, and uh, that's what we've been doing in this book, First John, together. It's interesting. I'm fascinated by learning. I love to learn. I hope you've been learning through the series. It's one of the reasons why we do it this way is we want you to learn the Bible. We want to make it real for you, but we all learn differently. I, I studied this week and saw that when you're younger, most people who are younger, it's more natural for them to be fluid learners. Here's what a fluid learner is. You, you could take new information quickly. Your short-term memory works really well. You, your processor works faster. The problem is you really don't know that much. Now, as you get older, you accumulate a bunch of knowledge. You're a crystallized learner. You accumulate a bunch of knowledge. You know a bunch of things, but it takes longer to learn new things and you can't remember what you learned. So it's kind of like we need each other. We need a little fluid. We need a little crystallized. We need to understand how we grow and get better. And that's why this book, in my mind, is such a gift. John doesn't just give us information, he gives us a picture and a window into Jesus, not a Jesus who was a theory, not a Jesus who spouted religious ideas, but a Jesus who was his close friend, a Jesus who changed everything in his life, and Pastor John comes to you and I, and he says, here's what I experienced, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he offers it to us. Now, the funny thing about this book is, it's not linear, it's not necessarily rational, it's more circular. He keeps circling and coming back. One of the big things of the book is he wants us to overcome. And we learn to overcome not by willpower, but by God's love filling us and working through us. And he says, there's a few things that I want you to overcome and we're gonna look at a few of those 
this week, but it's important to remember John was a real person. He was a fisherman, he and his brother, and their lives intersected this Jesus who changed everything, and they walked with him, and they moved from Galilee, and they made their base Jerusalem, and then he, he was killed and, and, and rose again on the next day, and he gave them a mission to build his church, and it went better than they ever imagined or dreamed. And then about the year 70, Jerusalem was in many ways leveled, the temple was destroyed, the Jews were driven out, and John relocates, many of his people that he loved are killed, and he finds himself later in life in a church in Ephesus, what we would know as modern Turkey, and as he reflects back on his life, he looks, and he's writing to people who are trying their best to make their faith grow, just like you and I are trying to make our faith grow, and he has some incredible things to say to us. Look at what John chapter two, verse one says, First John 2, 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Oh, is that all, right? Like, how hard is that? Just don't sin ever. But look what he says, I love this. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Really, the whole book com keeps coming back to this idea. John wants us to overcome sin, but notice here, it's relational language. It's family language. He doesn't say, hey, my fellow spiritual journeyers, my fellow people who work really hard to prove how righteous they are. He says, no, no, my dear children, I don't want you to sin, but if you do sin, you don't just have a king, you don't just have a judge, you have a father who loves you, who cares for you, who wants to help you become everything you can be. And I love that about John. He's encouraging us, he's setting a high bar, but he's telling us you can actually do it. And one of the things I love about John is he was a real guy. You're like, Jed, how do you know he was a real guy? Well, I like watching the story of his life. He has some funny things happen to him. He was a little bit of a rascal, I can relate to that. He and his brother, James, they go out in ministry in Luke chapter nine. There's some people who don't really wanna to listen to them and don't really want what Jesus has. And so they get this idea, they come back to Jesus, they're like, Jesus, these people didn't listen to you. What if you call down fire and burn them up? It's like, easy, guys. You can imagine Jesus going, let's scale it back, fellas. You missed the point, right? Like, that's pretty extreme. Maybe my favorite story about James and John, Matthew chapter 20, towards the end of his ministry. If I was one of the disciples, I never would have let him live this down. He and his brother, you know, they're insecure, they're prideful, they're competitive, they're like us. They're wanting the seat of privilege. They wanna be honored. They wanna be right next to Jesus. So they send, grown men send their mom to Jesus and be like, hey Jesus, anybody claim those seats next to you? Anybody call shotgun, right? Can my boys get in in there? And Jesus is like, I don't think your boys can handle this. If I was one of the other disciples, it could have been three years, five years, 10 years later, I'd be like, hey James and John, remember that one day you sent your mom? That was hilarious. <laughs> he was a real guy. He grew, he made progress, and I can relate to that. Because one of the things I know about God is he wants us to overcome sin, but he loves us and he works with us and he changes us from the person that we are to the person he created us to be. Now you see me here and you might, well, you know, uh, I haven't always been this way. In my younger days, I was prideful, arrogant, competitive, much like John. And, and the problem is a lot of times I didn't even know I was those things. I was so into myself that I didn't even realize my challenges and shortcomings. For example, as a senior in high school, we were playing basketball, and um, I was playing, we were playing this team, and this guy was guarding me, and he was talking a little trash. 
So I don't like that. So I hit him back with some more trash and then I hit him with the crossover and then I waited for him to come behind me. He fouled me and I laid it in and won. So I turned around, I got in his face and I, <laughs> I laughed at him. Now, I went to shoot the free throw. My teammates, we get in a huddle, my teammates are around and one of my teammates looks at me, he's like, what are you doing? I was like, what do you mean? I schooled that dude. Called me the bus driver, I take everybody to school. He's like, Jed, if you'd have done that to me, I'd have punched you in the face. I was like, oh, was that arrogant? I didn't even know. I, I wish I could say that was the only time I was arrogant. When I went to college, my buddies and I, we got into a little bit of a prank war, you ever done that? One of my friends in college, he was a daytime napper. Who does that? My friend, he was from Hawaii, so I was like, let's get him. So he was sleeping one day, so we said, what would be funny is if we fill his handful of shaving cream and then he'll smash himself in the face. So we put a mountain of shaving cream and started to tickle him. He didn't move it, he flipped it over, so we put a whole other can of shaving cream on him, and then we put like a feather up his nose and tickled his brain and he smashed shaving cream all over his face and his bed. We were laughing so hard, we took off running out of the room. He comes running out the door, shaving cream dripping down, and he goes, God is going to judge you for what you've just done. <laughs> I said, scale it back, bro. We were just having a good time, you know? It's just, ha ha, funny, gotcha. You know what he did? He came back around the other side, he got a can of hairspray, waited for me, hid in the darkness, took a lighter and blowtorched me. I'm pretty sure that's assault. Maybe, maybe you and Hazlitt could verify. Is that assault? I think it is. And so this is what guys do. We escalate, we're dumb, we can't tell the difference. We just, we just do dumb stuff, but God loves us and works with us. You probably don't have my dumb stuff, but you got your own dumb stuff. Moments where you said something you wish you didn't, way that you reacted at work, the way that you treated your spouse, something that you said to your kid, a vow that you made to God, you came and during worship you said, I'm never gonna do that again, and within a week you did it, and worse than the last time? What do we do in those moments? How do we respond? Is there hope for us? And John is writing to say, hey, you can live free from sin. You don't have to be a prisoner. See, no one wants to admit it when we've blown it. We, we, we like to find reasons to blame someone else. But the message of Jesus is so good, it says, you don't have to blame someone else, you don't have to hide. If you'll own your sin, if you'll say, God, change me, I wanna grow into who you've called me to be, this faithful Jesus, this loving Father, won't just condemn us, but he'll reach down and change us. One of the things I've found about leaders, and, and, and many of you are leaders, all of us at least have to lead ourselves. We all wrestle with the sense of, can I really do it? Those of you who are parents, you're like, would they send that child home with, do I know what I'm doing? Can I really handle this? When you get a promotion at work, maybe you're like confident on the outside. It's so common, actually psychologists call it imposter syndrome. We live with the anxiety. Is someone gonna take this away from me? Do I really know how to do it? And so we fake it till we make it and we act arrogant and we try to, pri we try to compensate with our pride. When we have a loving God who'll say, if you'll just admit your need, watch what I'll do in your life. Which brings us to 1 John chapter 1, verse eight. Look what he says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. How do we grow in a relationship with God? Well, growth always starts with acknowledging our need. I love though, look what he says. 1 John is all about contrast. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. But look at this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us 
from all unrighteousness. Here's what that means if you're watching online. You can't forgive yourself. There's not enough righteous things for you to do to make up for the poor choices, the bad attitudes, the decisions, the way that you hurt and offend other people. The only way to be set free and forgiven is to admit and confess your sin and allow Jesus to purify you. And the great thing is he will. See, most of us, we, we do one of two things. We either, I'm good, I got it together, somebody else needs to repent, or we go the other way and say, I'm a mess up, I'm a failure, I'm a mistake, all I ever do is blow it. And Jesus wants to save us from both of those unhealthy extremes. See, growth is, God, I need you. I'm admitting it, I'm quick to repent, I'm quick to own my sin, but when I sin, I don't run from you, I run to you because I know you wanna restore me. The most spiritual, mature people that I know, the people who grow the most, they're not aware of the culture's sin, they're not aware of their neighbor's sin, they're aware of their own sin, but not in a way that condemns them, but inspires them to change and to become more of who God called them to be. That's the kind of person I wanna be. I was thinking, how would I describe this to you? How could I summarize it to you this week? And I thought about this, I've, I've never really said it this way before, but, but I wanted you to get it. I would say it this way, Jesus, one of the greatest things about him, one of the things that religious people hated the most about him, Jesus is a friend of sinners. He comes to us, not when we're all put together, not on our best day, but on our worst day, at our lowest moment. He's a friend of sinners. He stoops down to be with us, but he doesn't stop there. He's a friend of sinners, but he's no friend of sin. He doesn't say, oh, this is fine, it's not that bad, you didn't do anything wrong, live your truth. He doesn't do any of that. He says, I'll come and meet you in your mess, but I'm gonna pick you up and put you back on the path you were created to live. God has that for each of us. But John wants to make this so practical. Look with me now, 1 John 4, verse 20. Fascinating, I told you that he repeats, it's circular. This little phrase I'm about to read shows up at least six different times in this short letter. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. Why would John have to repeat that six times? Because in John's day, like in our day, there's a lot of people who are hating brothers and sisters. For whoever does not love their brother and sister who they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Now John's being very intentional, very insightful. What he's doing is actually going all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, where it tells us that human beings were made in the image of God. Here's why that's so significant. What John's saying is you can't see God, but when you look in the eyes of a person who is made by God, you see the image of God. And how you treat that person in whom you see the image of God is a reflection for your love for God. John's point is, if you're gonna say you love God the way that we see you love God, by the way that you love other people. So why would anyone not love a brother or a sister? Well, in the first century, Jewish people had reasons to hate other people. Just like in our world today, there are reasons that people use to justify why they would hate other people. You're like, what are some of those reasons? Well, they weren't theory to John, he lived them. For example, there was a group of people that, that Jews were conditioned and trained to hate generationally. This hate was passed down from adults to their children and these people were called Samaritans. 
They, they were a people who went away from the Jews. They followed different gods. They intermarried with other people. And so the Jews said, those people are less than human. They're defiled. They're unholy. Don't even be around those people. So we find a story in John chapter four where Jesus and his disciples are walking and they're headed towards this place, Samaria. And all the disciples, immediately their reaction, their training, their teaching, because of their hatred, because of how much they despised Samaritans, they said, well, Jesus, let's go around it. We don't even want to be around those people. And Jesus said, not only are we not going around it, we're going right into it. And when we go into it, we're going to meet a woman. And this woman who's at this well has been married four times. And right now, she's living with someone who's not her husband. And buckle up, fellas. You may have not seen this one coming. This woman knows something about worshiping me that you don't even understand. Talk about being confronted by Jesus. You're saying, these people are unfit. These people, see, it's a demonic spirit that's very much alive and well in our world today. And the lie is, someone who doesn't look like me is not fully human and they're not a reflection of God so I can treat them however I want. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. And it'll keep you from the love of God. You may have realized I'm not just talking about Samaria. Here in our country, there was a third, fifth compromise. What a lie that was. The message was African-Americans were three-fifths. Slaves were three-fifths human. The Dred Scott degree came along. The Supreme Court said that a slave or an African-American will never be a citizen. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's demonic. You can't be the people of God and look at another human being made in the image of God and say, I have reasons to hate you, not according to God. The picture of heaven, the picture of his kingdom is a picture where his image is reflected in the faces of all people. Heaven is going to be the most ethnically diverse place on the planet and it's time for you and I to celebrate and to get used to that. That wasn't the only reason they had to hate. And let's be honest, it's not just black and white in America. This is a problem all around the world. And so the people of God become a solution by showing what it looks like to love someone who doesn't look like them. I don't look like a lot of you. I'm a ginger. <laughs> One out of 75. Although I will say, in our church family, we're way better than that. It's like, you get what you celebrate. The more I celebrate gingers, the more we show up. But it's, it's, it's not just the way we look. It's our political affiliation. See, in the, in the ancient world, they hated the Romans because the Romans were oppressive. The Romans were a political party. The Romans defiled their sacred spaces. So the Jews thought, it's okay for us to hate the Romans. The only problem is, Jesus didn't do that. In Matthew chapter eight, they're walking along. A centurion, a Roman soldier, in charge of hundreds of other soldiers, is coming up to Jesus. Now, someone who looked like him had probably hurt the disciples or one of their family members. They would have been afraid. They would have been mad. They would have hated this guy. And Jesus says to this man, I've never seen anyone in my own people who has as much faith as he does. How mad do you think that made the disciples? Because in their mind, the point was, we've got to fight the Romans. We've got to resist them. Our political enemies are our enemies, and it's okay to hate them. Once again, not according to Jesus. How would our world look different 
If instead of hating and vilifying and dehumanizing quote unquote political enemies, we love them in the same way that we love Jesus. What kind of a message would that send to a world that's looking around? Is God doing anything in the world? What if we could love others who voted differently, thought differently, not to acknowledge or to agree with them, but to love them out of our love for Jesus? This is what it means to overcome sin. And the third thing is maybe the most painful one. They had reasons to hate tax collectors. Tax collectors betrayed them, they stole from them, they were thieves. They sold out their own people to the Romans to make money off of their neighbors. What a reason to hate someone. Jesus goes, not only do I not want you to hate them, I'm calling Matthew, a tax collector, to be a fellow disciple. He's now your brother. He's bunking with you. Get used to it. I'm asking you. If you love me, love him. What if we, in our desire to grow into who God created us to be, could be the kind of people that would even love those who've hurt us? What does this look like? I want to make this as practical as possible before I pray for you. So how do I know if I'm overcoming sin? How does that actually work, Jed? How could I tell if that was something that was, uh, that was actually happening in my life? If you're watching online, here's what I would say. The first thing is, I'm convicted instead of condemned. Now you might be thinking, well, Jed, those are church words. Can you make it a little bit more simple? Well, I'd say it this way. I feel bad about what I've done, not who I am. See, conviction starts in our heart. See, as a parent, you know this, when you correct your children, a lot of times, they'll, 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 either, they'll either deny it or they'll just fall into a self-pity party. I'm so terrible, it's all, no. You made a mistake, you're not a mistake. And in the same way, this is how conviction, this is how the Holy Spirit works in us. When he comes to challenge us for our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts, our words, he's not trying to remind us of, of guilt and shame and all the ways that we fall short. He's trying to inspire us with who he's created us to be. Conviction starts in our heart out of a heart of trust that says, God loves me, he's for me, he wants the best for me. I, I wanna try to make it even more practical. Here's how the healthy process of conviction works. It starts in our heart. Heart is meant to be tender. God comes and says, hey, the way that you're acting, the way that you're speaking, that's less than who I created you to be. And with a tender heart, we're able to stop and go, okay, Jesus, I hear you. Help me to change. I need your help. We acknowledge our need, that humility that, that we have to acknowledge. We can't do it. We're not good enough and strong enough in our own. We can't muster up the spiritual, the spiritual character it, re it requires to repent, so we need him to fill us. But that humility leads to a growth. And you look up and you go, wow, I didn't react the way I always used to react. Maybe this has happened to you. So not long ago, somebody goes, hey, that was really patient how you responded there. My wife was like, are you sure they were talking about you? Um, it, really, it really did happen. And, and, and I was like, no, no, it's because God's working in my soul. He's working in my character. He's changing me. I'm so grateful. I couldn't have done that on my own. There's not enough try hard in me to make that change happen. But as I'm humble and as I'm convicted and as I respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit, I start to become something I couldn't be on my own. 
And when you see that, you don't go, look how awesome I am. You go, look how great God is. And I'm so grateful that you changed me. You brought me closer to my wife. You brought me closer to my children. You brought me closer to who you created me to be. You're like, Jed, why are we talking so much about sin? Here's the thing, John talks about it and we don't think about it right. It's not a list of rules we're trying to avoid. It's a wrong way of viewing the world. And when we understand how conviction works, we receive it as loved children of a loving father. And the great thing about that gratitude is it produces compassion. Compassion for people who don't know what you know. Compassion for people who haven't grown the way you've grown. Compassion for somebody who looks different than you, who thinks differently than you. Instead of seeing them as a rival, you see them as someone who you love. The second thing is, how do I know if I'm overcoming sin? I'm compassionate instead of arrogant. In other words, I'm not better than someone else. I'm forgiven. Freely I've received grace, so freely I'll give it. This is really hard for us. We're tribal by nature. We like to divide the world into winners and losers. We do it arbitrarily. We do it intentionally. Football season's coming up. You're gonna wear different jerseys. Some of you are nervous that I'm gonna make a Cowboys joke. I'm not. My team has its own problems. I don't even know if I have a team. I'm an NFL orphan, pray for me. Um, so then I just devolved to my school allegiance and my school pride. I gotta be honest, I do this in my own home when my children are young. I tell them the arch rival school, you know, we'll pray for them, but we never even wear their color. We don't speak their name in our house. It's arbitrary, why do we do that? Because we love feeling, hey, this is the winners and those are the losers. The truth is, we do this with people, not even just tribes, just normal. Psychologists call it fundamental attribution error. It sounds impressive, here's all it really means. Is that if you go tomorrow on your way to work, someone cuts you off, you'll be like, that person is a jerk. 30 seconds later, you cut someone off, you know, it's been a tough morning and I had other things on my mind, I didn't see them. <laughs> we all do that. Right? Compassion makes us go, you know what? I'm just like that. I make mistakes. I need to be forgiven. I can be quick to forgive. I love what this 17th century Lutheran phrase, it's one of Pastor Jeff's favorite. You know, if you said something in the 17th century and we're still saying it today, it must be worth listening to. Look at what it says. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. What that really means is, as followers of Christ, we have to keep the main things the main things. We have to have unity on who Jesus is, salvation, sin, the resurrection, all those, the, the authority of God's word. We're, we're steadfast in those things. And the non-essentials, what do you wear to church? Do we sit in pews or chairs? What kind of worship do we listen to? What, any of those things, there's liberty, there's freedom to express yourself. But whatever we're talking about, all things, not charity is in a nonprofit, charity is in love. We give grace, we're, we give understanding. Here's what I want us to think about. Compassion should make you curious. Here's how compassion makes you curious. What has that person been through that I haven't? How is their experience different than mine? How would I feel if I'd lived through what they lived through? What can I learn from their experience? Here's what I've found. Arrogance, pride, and anger don't change anyone's heart, but gracious compassion can change a lot of people. This is who God's called us to be. Here's the third and final thing. I'm centered on loving God instead of stumbling off course. The truth is what John's trying to get us to see is 
According to Jesus, the way that you and I demonstrate our love for God is not how much we know, it's not how many services we attend, it's not if we lead a small group, it's not how many times we volunteer, it's not how often we read the Bible. The way we show our love for Jesus is the way that we love other people. And I've met so many people who who had good intentions and they got passionate about a cause or an issue or an idea. They see an injustice in the world and they get so inspired and they become so passionate about it. But the problem is they end up stumbling. See, in 1 John 2.10, it says that if you love your brother and sister, you'll live in the light, you won't stumble. But 1 John 2.11 says that if anyone hates a brother or sister in the darkness, they walk around in darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. I've seen so many well-meaning Christians get excited about a political cause, nonprofit issue, something that there was maybe at one point value in, but they got so into it, so consumed by it, they lost the track of what the whole thing was for in the first place, which was to love and serve other people with the love of Jesus. Maybe you haven't gotten off track. Maybe your issue is not being overly focused on something that doesn't really reflect the heart of Jesus. Maybe maybe you've been hurt by someone like that. Maybe you've just been hurt. You know, the amazing thing about trauma, like real trauma, is that our brains go into this state. When I think about the most painful moments of my life, there's just a handful, but, but those moments are so vivid and so real that, that, that a thought, a smell, a memory can trigger my brain to going right back in that moment. You know that trauma can even be shared. Maybe it's something that happened to a family member. Maybe it's something that happened to a child. And if you're not careful, you go right back to that place because there's a fascinating study, a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Our bodies record these things. But the great news is Jesus is bigger than your brain and he's bigger than your body. And he can set you free from whatever trauma you've been in. You say, Jed, how do I know if I'm centered on love? I think about it this way. If those moments where I was hurt the most, if that person walked in the room, could I do everything in my ability, everything in my power, not to be best friends, not to say what they did was okay, but to love them in a way that honored and showed my love for God. I was thinking about this. Heard about a man named John recently. John came to Freedom Weekend. John had been to Freedom Weekend five times. He'd been as a participant. He'd been as an intercessor, three times as a leader. He felt God saying, I want you to go again, but this time I want you to go through again as a participant. He's like, Lord, why would I do that? I'm ready to serve, I'm ready to lead. He's like, I just want you to go. Amazing thing I love about John is, John understood that when we wanna grow closer to God, it's not that we need more knowledge in our head, We need more tenderness in our heart. John was tender in his heart. The Holy Spirit began to speak to him and said, you know your adult son? There's some things that you need to repent for. John said, well, what about this? He did this and he made these bad choices and he needs to admit this. And the Holy Spirit said, we're not talking about him. We're talking about you. Go and repent. John's heart was tender. He went to his son. He followed Jesus. He obeyed him. And he said, I got restoration, my son heard things he was waiting years to hear. God did something incredible I never could have produced on my own. Same God who did it for John will do it for you and I. When our hearts are tender, you say, Jed, could you sum up the book of 1 John? 
You want to get close to Jesus? You want to overcome? Be quick to repent. Have a tender heart. When God taps you on the shoulder, say, Lord, I'm right here. I'm listening. Whatever you want, it's all yours. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for your presence. Lord, you're a friend of sinners. You meet us at that low moment, but you don't leave us there. You don't endorse or justify our sin. You set us free. If you're here today and you thought, well, Jed, I, I thought a relationship with Jesus was doing a bunch of stuff or coming to church or following a list of rules. Those things can be at some level helpful, but none of that gets you into a relationship with Jesus. It's admitting your need. It's admitting I've blown it. It's confessing your sin and saying, I know I've made mistakes, Jesus, but will you make me new? Will you make me whole? Right there in your own words, just make it your prayer. Maybe you've prayed that prayer. Like John, whether you're in Hazlitt, whether you're in McKinney, whether you're online, here in the room, Jesus is saying, you let hate creep in. You got off track. You've missed the mark. That thing that you think no one knows, I see it, but I don't see it to condemn you. I see it to set you free and just have a tender heart and say, Jesus, I'm right here. I'm willing to admit my sin. I'm willing to be changed. I want you to make me everything you created me to be. God, I'm praying for each of us with the courage to say that, that you'd help us, that you'd transform us, that you'd make us new. In Jesus' name, amen.